0: Support for The Walk Home and KNKX comes from the Heartfelt Mental Health Clinic, providing assessment, therapy, and medication management to support and improve mental health. Run by and for the LGBTQIA+, polyamorous, and sex-positive communities. Licensed providers offer care, counseling, diagnosis, and remedy through the convenience of telemed sessions. More at heartfeltmh.com.
1: This podcast mentions sexual and physical abuse of children. Please take care while listening.
2: So I want to ask you, Mercia. As a, as a mom, I mean, I don't ever think about coming and tending to my daughter's grave. Is that what, what is that like?
1: Well, at first it was hell. It was always crying. You know, or sometime I'll cry after I leave here. Because I never thought in a million years that my baby would go. So
2: I noticed when when we got here and you were you know, setting up all this stuff. You were I, I heard you talking to him. Do you do you talk to Manny a lot when you come here?
1: I talk to Manny even when I'm not here. <laughs> what do you talk to him about? Oh man, everything. One morning he came to me in a dream. And he had on the white suit and white shoes his hair was cut close face was clean and he was turning cartwheels up in heaven having a grand time so when i talked to him honestly kari i have peace
2: Marcia is arranging some small flower pots, bulbs that will probably bloom soon.
1: I'm going to put one here so you can see Manny's name. And she's fiddling
2: with lights she brought to drape around his grave. But they won't turn on.
1: I wish this light would go on. What's wrong with you? You worked very well when I put it in the bag. And now it's not working.
2: Maybe she needs to come back with some batteries.
1: Oh, man
2: as she's about to pack up for the night.
1: Okay. And, hey! Oh, hey! Hot dog!
2: The lights flicker on. Manny,
1: see? Manny, thank you. Thank you, baby. I knew you like this. (laughs) My baby, I tell you the truth. He's always gonna make sure that his mama is gonna be all right. You know that?
2: Marcia makes sure Manny's plot stands out, just like he did. So the sun's going down, it's cold out, but you're out here planting flowers. Why?
1: You see that 08 1986 3, 3, Many are called, but few are chosen. My son was chosen. When I was six months pregnant, I was filled with the precious Holy Ghost, with him. Red high heel shoes, I'm gonna be funny. Red high heel shoes, a red straw hat, and the Lord blessed me to dance and jump up just like he did Mary and Martha. I'm not kidding you. This is the least that I can do for my son.
2: Even after it got dark, even with a knee injury, Marcia spent a couple of hours down in the damp grass fixing up that tombstone. The world knows Manny because of how he died, but Marcia will always know Manny as her baby.
1: The party never started, girl, until Manny got there. He watched (laughs) the news every single day. He got a drum set when he was three or four years old, and he continued to play. His love was jazz. Me and Manny connected with Miles Davis. He would tell jokes, and he was the—in fact, he was the jokester of the family.
2: Lots of people told us stories about Manny, about a man who took care of his family, who loved God, who found joy in all types of music, someone who was sharp and thoughtful. Their stories also paint a picture of a man who was struggling with trauma, from abuse, with addiction— someone who had made mistakes and was trying to move past them. They paint a picture of how Manny ended up at 96th and Ainsworth on March 3rd, 2020. Looking back at everything that happened throughout Manny's life, his walk to that corner didn't start the night he died. It started almost 33 years before that. From KNKX Public Radio and the Seattle Times, This is The Walk Home, Episode 4, A Blessed Child. Manny was born in Tacoma on August 28, 1986. His dad died from stomach cancer when he was just two months old, so Marcia was left raising Manny and his older brother on her own.
1: Manny was my middle child, you guys. (laughs) I always wanted him to know he had a place He never had to worry about his place with me because he knew that his mama loved him and I would do anything for my son and my children. Manny was four when his sister, Monet, was born.
3: We would climb trees, jump out of trees. Um, Manny was notorious for making, like, mud pies and eating ladybugs. Yeah, we spent a lot of time, like, outside playing, um, riding our bikes. Um, like typical 90s kids, you know, like totally unsupervised, like <laughs> outside for way too long, eight to nine hours a day, like, and we were homeschooled too. So I want to know more, like how you would describe Manny. Um, so Manny was the funny one and the troublemaker. Manny's always get in trouble. Like Manny would get a whooping every single day like sometimes three times a day because he was just always doing stuff
1: man he played soccer he wrestled he played football he wanted, he played basketball track is where he found his gift the hundred meter he placed it's not like first in the state but it was eighth in the whole state he high-jumped. He was an athlete.
2: Marcia kept her kids busy. She loves bragging about all the things they were good at growing up. For Monet, it was dancing. Matthew was the artistic one, drawing and writing. He's a photographer now. Once, when Manny was little, before getting really into sports and band, he played the Mad Hatter in a children's theater production of Alice in Wonderland.
1: But <laughs> I'm telling you, he was like, Mom, I don't wanna do this. You're doing it, okay? You're getting on that stage and you're acting kid. <laughs> I just stayed right there with him and made him do it. Dropped him off every day and he did it.
2: <laughs> they lived in a tight-knit neighborhood full of kids who ran around playing together until it got dark. That
4: included Sarah Simmons. In high school was when I was like had a crush on him and I was ninth grade. He was like eleventh grade and yeah. For a long time, Sarah was the love of Manny's life. Still, I can't really look at any situation I've ever been in. So, like, I was never so crazy about somebody. Like, but <laughs> I used to climb in his window, and I'd always stay with Monet in her bed and wait for her to go to work early in the morning. And we'd all hang out, and like, I'd sneak in his room. It was that sappy, whirlwind teen romance, all-consuming,
2: maybe a little naive, nothing-will-ever-tear-us-apart kind of love. That feeling nobody seems to understand except you and this other person. The stuff that makes your parents roll their eyes behind your back.
4: I loved how sweet he was. Um, I loved how he loved jazz. He got me into jazz. He was, like, the best drummer I've ever seen. He had a, a drum set inside of his room, I remember, and he just didn't care. He'd play in there, and you could hear him from the street. Manny was serious about Sarah. His father, he passed away of cancer. He only had one thing of him, and it was this blue teddy bear with one missing eyeball, and it was just, like, so just old and rugged, and it was was just cute. He'd always have it on his bed. Um, For my birthday, he gave it to me. And that was, like, I even was like, you know, I can't take this. Manny wouldn't take it back. We went through all our high school years together afterwards and growing and maturing. So I've seen a lot of him, like ups and downs, and I've seen like his true color, so. how How did you talk about the future? Like what were your plans together? God, we didn't even talk about our future. <laughs> I don't think, I think we just like winged it. I think during those times, we were so young, It was like, what were we, like, 19, 20? You work, you pay your bills, and then you hang out with your friends.
2: Manny and Sarah were living together in Portland, Oregon. Manny
4: wanted to be a drummer. But soon, they drifted apart. And i just seen a whole different change in him. And that's when it started not really working out. His whole attitude, he started just acting different. He was just everywhere. His thoughts... I knew he hid it from me for a while, but I knew, you know, I knew my man. I knew something wasn't right, and either it was drugs or it was, you know, mental health. Monet says Manny
2: was smoking weed
4: to numb himself. It triggered something for him, and I
3: remember Manny telling me that when he smoked weed for the first time, that was his highest high, and then, He kept smoking it, thinking that he was going to get that high again, and he
2: didn't, but he wanted that. Again, he liked that feeling. Sarah knew it was over,
4: but she still wanted Manny to be happy. She was worried about him. He did take a turn when we broke up, and I stayed in Portland, and he stayed in Washington. Um, Yeah, because it just, it wasn't working out. He, like, totally just felt like, he could not live anymore he was like he was kind of getting a little like suicidal too like he doesn't want to live anymore and i'd just be like okay like let's just chill he broke down like he was on the floor like
3: crying uncontrollably unconsolable like for hours and Of course, now I know if you're crying for that long, like, obviously you're having a panic attack. There's some depression, like there's something going on there. Then I didn't know, but I I knew, like, that's not normal. Um, But I think that at that moment, it became apparent to my mom that something was wrong with him.
2: That's around the time Manny's mom, Marcia, realized it wasn't just weed. He had a more serious drug problem. He was 24 years old and staying with her.
3: And he had stole from her. And when he had stole from her, she had told him, like, you know, you can't stay here
2: anymore. The breakdown over his ex, the drugs, the stealing. Monet believes it was all connected to the parts of Manny's childhood that weren't so happy. Parts he hadn't really dealt with. She says he was self-medicating over abuse that they both suffered as kids. You see, Monet was born a few years after Manny's dad died. It was her dad who helped raise her older brothers. He's been dead for over a decade, but Monet has vivid memories of her dad sexually abusing her when she was young. And she remembers him beating Manny, too.
3: My dad was really abusive There was a time when, like, Manny had just, like, broke his growth plate playing football in his knees. And so he had just gotten his cast taken off. And my dad had told, like, Manny to do something. And Manny had said something smart back. And Manny was, like, maybe 12 or 13. And um, my dad just, like, started, like, beating on him, threw him in the Christmas tree, He could have rebroke his knee, the way that he had thrown him and the way that Manny had landed. Physically, nothing hurt Manny, but emotionally, it hurt.
2: When Manny was an adult, he revealed even more about what he dealt with as a kid. He told his family that a relative sexually abused him for years when he was a child.
3: We didn't know that until uh, Manny was like almost 30 years old. And, you know, maybe that's why he would act out and act the way he did when he was younger because he wanted someone to ask him why, you know, why are you acting like this? Like, what's going on? You know, and he obviously couldn't express
2: himself or show emotion because that wasn't allowed. Monet says a kid like Manny, a black boy in the 90s, was expected to swallow his feelings no matter how traumatic and she remembers Manny struggling to sit still in school. He would talk too much, and he would crack jokes. And he wouldn't turn in
3: his work. So, like, my mom would sometimes have to sit on top of him to make him do the work and turn it in. He could have did really, really well in school. But I, I think part of it is, like, again, we're in the 90s. Like, nobody has autism, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, any, like— Any other thing besides, like, maybe some kids may have dyslexia. That's a thing that they did back then. And even then, if he did have it and was diagnosed with it, in our community, you're not going to tell the doctor that you have that. They don't want them in our business. You're not going to get medication for it. You're just going to get your ass beat so you can learn how to sit down and shut up.
2: So Manny bottled
3: all of this up for most of his life. He was chasing a high, you know? And we we know now it's because he was trying to numb whatever it was that he had been feeling this whole entire time. And when he got that very first high, that cured him of everything. And it made him feel invincible. It made him happy, you know? And he told me, he said, that, that high, that was what I got when I did meth. And every time I did meth, that's what it did.
2: People close to him say Manny was easy to love, but he needed more than that. He needed help. Instead, he went looking for that high. It sent him into a messy cycle that was hard to break out of.
0: Support for The Walk Home and KNKX comes from Movetotacoma.com. Move to Tacoma.com is a neighborhood guide, a blog and a podcast to help people in Tacoma, Pierce County and beyond find their place in the city of destiny. More information at movetotacoma.com.
5: Race might be a hot topic right now, but for so many of us talking about race is nothing new. On the Code Switch podcast from NPR, we go beyond the headlines and we go deep. Listen now.
1: Hi, I'm Will James. I make special projects at KNKX, like this one. Making these sorts of long-term projects, it's a lot. It's like putting together a 100,000-piece puzzle after all the pieces have been dumped out of a helicopter. You've gotta go digging for all these facts and then figure out how they all fit together. It's worth it, though. I think. Storytelling with depth and context is so important right now because frankly, this is a confusing time to be alive. That's why I'm asking you to help KNKX make more projects like The Walk Home by donating at knkx.org today. I really appreciate it.
4: All right, we're on the record for a negotiated sanction review session for uh, Manuel Ellis It's
0: almost impossible to understand the circumstance of how Manuel Ellis's life ended without understanding how he got to that particular intersection on that particular night and it's inextricable from his past
2: Seattle Times investigative reporter Patrick Malone knows a lot about what Manny was up to in his late twenties and early thirties. If you
6: could raise your right hand, you solemnly affirm testimony about giving this matter the truth, Mr. Ellis. I do.
0: In all these things, all that I had learned about Manuel Ellis in the first few months of this, and maybe even the first year, I'd never heard his voice. But it was like a ghost walked into the room when I first heard those courtroom recordings.
2: Around this time, Manny was in and out of jails and courtrooms. He was seeking treatment for addiction and mental health, leaving a paper trail of public records that paint a picture of a turbulent point in his life. Those records show Manny started getting into more serious trouble in 2013 and 2014, a few years into his heavy drug use. Then, in 2015, Manny was arrested and charged for trying to cash a stolen check at a money tree. A revolving door of arrests followed for the next four years. He went to jail over... Can you state your name for the record? Manuel Elijah Ellis.
7: ...and over...
2: For the record, could you state your name and date of birth?
7: Manuel Elijah Ellis. Uh,
2: ...and over again.
7: Manuel Elijah Ellis.
6: Manuel Elijah Ellis. Manuel Ellis. <laughs> Manuel Ellis. Mr. Ellis. D-O-C-
2: Manny went through mental health court, a program meant to help him get back on track. He was arrested six times for violating the requirements like missing scheduled appointments or leaving the county without permission. His court fines started compounding. The police were a constant presence in his life. Records show more than 40 documented contacts he had with local cops.
0: You know, I was able to find times he was contacted by police that amounted to nothing, times he was contacted by police that amounted to charges that were dismissed. Uh, those, Those are probably the two biggest bins. And then there's a narrow number where he's contacted by police and actually got in trouble for having, for instance, stolen property or different things, especially when he was homeless, living in his car. One of these convictions came from a possession of stolen property charge. He was pulled over in this car. He admits to the officer, I'm living in this car. These are all my possessions. And they start going through it. Like, well, what's that? What's that? And, uh, some of the property that was in there turned out to be, have been reported stolen
2: they kept pulling him over.
0: Broken tail light, the paint on the fender of his car didn't match the rest of the car, and a cracked windshield once for being uh, out late at night with other black men. He worked as a landscaper at times, an odd job, so he would be out at like 4.35 in the morning heading to an early job, and you know he's seen in the quote-unquote wrong neighborhood at the wrong time, and he's getting pulled over,
2: as this was all happening, though, Manny was showing up in court. He was listening and responding to the people in charge. He was doing what he could to navigate all these systems that can easily overwhelm someone's life.
0: He was willing to not really parse stuff. He would talk fairly honestly, I think, with these folks, even about some unflattering mistakes that he had made. And it was, it was almost like... Uh, the only time he really gets to show up and have a say in any of this.
6: Hopefully, during this sanction time, Mr. Ellis grows to understand the importance of not just talking about making changes, but actually starts taking the steps towards living a drug-free lifestyle, reobtaining a job, and most importantly, getting involved with pro-social friends within the community.
2: The recordings of these hearings are brief. Most don't even last five minutes. Manny would sometimes plead guilty. Sometimes he would answer a few questions.
7: What in your report? I just had a newborn daughter on the twenty fourth of. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see if you can get the date right. Uh, I had a, my, my daughter was born on the twenty second of uh, September. Mm-hmm. And um, on uh so September, I have a heart condition called pericarditis. Mm-hmm. And with this heart condition, I'm prone to getting walking pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And you know, with having a newborn daughter, I I figured in my head, I don't want to give her anything that's going to help and hinder her growth or anemia or any any, any form or fashion. So I chose to uh, go with my better judgment and go to the hospital. They found that I had an upper respiratory infection and that I could pass something on to my daughter. So So you're feeling sick? Yes, ma'am messed up at the end. Well if you got twelve month supervision you have all these violations in twenty fifteen and two thousand sixteen. I haven't had a violation since this did year. Did you go to prison or jail? Yes, or? I went to, I went to prison for four months because I was deferred on a um, through mental health court and I, oh, I see and I messed up at the at the very end.
8: And then when did you get out of prison?
7: October of 2017. So October of twenty seventeen. So you haven't had a
8: violation from October of twenty seventeen
7: to for a year. Yes ma'am. I see Okay, so are you in mental health now? Uh, in treatment? I'm, I'm, or? Growing, I'm going to Greater Lakes. I go to Greater Lakes once a week to talk to them. Okay, and that's your mental health provider? That's it. That's all I do. Okay, and then are you on medication? Uh, Actually, on Thursday I have an appointment to get um, back on medication again. So you haven't been taking medication for how long? Since September oh. of 2017, 2016. But you think you need medication? Absolutely. Okay. I know I do. I'm just asking. Um, you know yourself
2: and the, Manny's the treatment for mental health had been okay. spotty at best. Once he finally sought more consistent care, he was battling addiction at the same time.
0: Really the flashpoint in Manuel Ellis' life was drugs. So when he was able to avoid illegal narcotics, he seemed to be doing better. And also once he got on uh, prescribed medication to cope with his mental illness, he seemed to be doing better.
2: But taking medication while he was in recovery was complicated. Monet says he couldn't take meds for ADHD, for example, to avoid getting hooked on them. Manny was still helping take care of his family. But that was sometimes hard to manage with all the legal hoops he had to jump through. Once, he skipped out on his probation officer, who was having him arrested for a violation of his release. He explained to the hearing officer why he was in a hurry to leave. Monet's kids were with him.
7: I look after my sister's kids, and the reason why I left was because they were in the car. I uh, I understand the totality of the, uh, the of, you know my my admission and what I did was wrong, but at the same time, towards the end of my tenure with Department of Corrections, I have remained compliance for the most part. I haven't had a dirty UA, and I don't know how long I haven't won a warrant, and I don't know how long and I have you know. Maybe been a little bit indolent or complacent in my recovery towards the end, but for the most part I have a good
6: Not put yourself in a situation where you yes. might be cuffed up and I always report.
7: Called off, right? I always report. I do. And I haven't gone warrant in a very long time. And it was a bad it was a decision I had to make because of my I I didn't want to see my, my nephews and my nieces seeing me getting taken away. I just I did not want to see. Well, that. you're in
6: a hard spot there. I you are because, that. you know, bringing them with, there's always the possibility of, yes. Yes. and so it's probably not a good thing to bring them, but if you don't have any other choice, what do you, choice do you have? Correct. On the well, okay. Well, let's hear on these things first okay. and then I'll hear okay, sorry about all that. everything else that's going right. on in your life. Right. I just needed to hear anything that's uh, directly related to the allegation. So. Um, you did leave the to go yes, I because I had the kids in the car. All right. And, uh, you had consumed meth and cocaine? No, I just consumed meth. I didn't use any cocaine. Just meth. Okay. And then there was a failing to pay legal financial yeah. obligations since on about 10 20 right. I just started working. Okay. So I just started working. Go ahead and accept your guilty pleas and your findings of guilt. Okay. okay. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do 17 days. I'll get you out on Monday.
2: So Manny was in and out of jail, in and out of treatment, in and out of court, making it hard to hold down a job or find stable housing. But he was trying. Records show Manny got treatment for his mental health from a bunch of different places. People in charge noted he was respectful, with a supportive family to lean on. Still, his mental illness was a constant barrier. It was cited over and over again in records we reviewed. It seemed the only way he could get out of this cycle was to find consistent treatment that worked. But Washington State and Pierce County don't have nearly enough mental health resources to meet the demand.
0: Just imagine, you know, that you've been starving as as he was for for mental health care and you're waiting, you're waiting an exceedingly long time to eat. Then you get out and you're On your way, you march straight down to the restaurant, and the sign says closed.
2: Through all of this, Manny found comfort by being around nieces and nephews, and two kids that he considered his own, a boy and a girl.
3: He was like Mr. Dad, so when the mom would go to work, like that was, he was like taking care of her all day.
1: To watch him as a father, was really fun and um Manny was a loving uncle these guys loved him to
3: death he would get my boys and they would go to like to the movies they would go play basketball because he was trying to you know like build a relationship with them because Manny really like he loved kids
1: and he really wanted to be like a good father his daughter had been removed from Tacoma, and she moved over to Spokane. That really hurt him. So it was a trigger for him.
2: In September 2019, after Manny's daughter moved away, Monet says his mental health took a dive. That's when he was arrested for the last time. By then, he owed more than $4,000 in court fees and fines.
0: The wheels were really coming off for him, and he was struggling with uh, keeping his addiction under control. And so he shows up one night at an a w restaurant, you know, nude, high, and tries to rob the place. It doesn't go well. The clerk beats him up, and then he runs away, and the police tase him and arrest him. And it was uh, the incident that put him on the path to living in a sober living home. And he was on bail in that incident at the time of his death.
2: Cedric Armstrong was Manny's landlord at that sober home.
5: I met Manny at a meeting. And uh, during these meetings, uh, I often let the people know that we have rooms for rent. And uh, someone mentioned it to him, and he saw me outside. And he came up to me and said, hey, man, I know you don't know me from Adam, but uh, I need some help. He said, and I and I started asking him questions. And he said, I said, where are you staying? He said, well, I'm homeless right now, and I don't have a job. And he started rambling, trying to make his case for why he should uh, have housing or why I should give him a chance. And I was cutting him off, saying, the spot is yours. And he just broke down in tears. And this brings tears to my eyes because to see this guy with his Physique like that of a man, uh, break down and say that a stranger would put his trust in him, uh, and that would give him a chance. And he said that there must be a God.
2: Manny moved in with Cedric and his wife Kimberly Mays the day before Halloween in 2019. A month after he was arrested, there were a few rules. He had to stay sober, and he had to go to church once a week. He asked his landlords if he could go with them. Cedric and Kimberly attend last-day ministries in Tacoma's hilltop neighborhood. He
5: was all in, and uh, first time we walked him into church, he saw that drum set, and he says, hey, man, I haven't played drums in a long time. And I was like, I was a drummer, too. And I was like, I said, like, go ahead. And he hopped on those drums, and oh, my God, it was like, Watching magic happen in front of you, uh, like a kid that had found a lost toy. And he, uh, it just lit up his whole persona of who he was.
2: Manny grew up going to church with his family, but this place was different. A sign on the door reads, the church where everybody is somebody. You know
3: what I mean when they're not that type of church. You know, like, they weren't, I don't know how to explain it. They're just not that type of church where it's like, Um, They may say, come as you are, but they're judging you. The church was filled with a bunch of sinners. (laughs) Like, everyone was high on something, used to be high on something, was a prostitute, a pimp, drug dealer, whatever, you name it. So they were all, you know, they all were whatever, and no one cared. Having, like, that sense of belonging, he got, like, a second family and, like, a second chance at having that.
2: That high the pure happiness Manny had been chasing his entire adult life. Monet says he found it every night he walked through those church doors. He had made it somewhere that really felt like home, where he could be his full self, where he rediscovered music, where he found his fellowship with God. Pastor Odell Williams remembers the day Manny pulled a deacon into a back room and asked to be saved.
8: And he just came out, and there's just something about when you can just look at somebody, and their face is radiant, and he was just felt more at peace. And that was the thing that really stood out. I mean, oftentimes you can look in, at people's face, and it just seemed like there's a lot of turmoil that's going on. And this particular Wednesday, when he came out from that room, he was just there was a radiant about his face that was that was peaceful. Both in, at that time had professed that he accepted the Lord in his life.
3: He was like doing Bible study, he was doing men's group, and then he was doing um, like the choir rehearsals because he played the drums for the church. And that was like, at least like three to four times a week.
8: Uh, He was one of the most engaged and aggressive uh, beaters. I mean, he was just really engaged. Hold up brother man, just uh, slow that down a little bit. I mean, he was just really, he had more chops and licks, and uh, and I had talked to him once. Hey, brother, I mean, sometimes less can be more. He was, he was, he was, he had a lot of skills and uh, he was really dumping a lot of those skills into some songs that don't necessarily need all those flavors, but he was, he was really, he was really good at what he did.
2: Pastor Williams got to know Manny best during men's fellowship every month.
8: He looked forward to coming to those, and he was, and at this point, Where Manny was, he was excited about coming. I I saw that, that there was hope. And this is what I saw in, in his behalf. The walls beginning to
2: come down. For the first time in his life, Manny was talking about plans for the future. He dreamed about starting his own business along with his sister, a place where he could give people like him a chance to start over. They talked about moving across the state together where he would help take care of Monet's kids while she went to law school. Manny still had the fallout from his arrest hanging over him, but things seemed to be going well. He had a roof over his head. He found positive ways to fill his time. He was making goals. Sober life is what he would call it. And he wanted to stay sober.
3: He was so calm, you know, but he was also very hopeful. Um, he seemed at peace, though. He seemed like, um, you know, he was content, and he he wasn't worried about like his life anymore and where it was going. You know that those those thoughts stopped, um, or he stopped speaking about that because he he knew where his life was. So we thought he knew where his life was headed.
2: Manny spent the last night of his life, March 3rd, 2020, like most nights, at church. He was playing drums during a revival. I am free. Kimberly, one of his landlords, still remembers the sermon that night.
4: The word was about life is a vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow. That's important that you get your heart right with God before you leave this earth.
5: You know, and and as we were riding home, Manny, this is what Manny said. Man, I enjoyed myself so much. I want my mom and my sister to know the God I know who saved me. That's what he said in the car that night on the the ride home. And, uh.
2: Around 10 o'clock, Manny called his mom. Monet was with her and remembers hearing her brother laughing. He made their mom laugh too, like always. Marcia says he talked about what he was looking forward to.
1: I have made a change. I am giving my life to Christ. I want to be able to be with my children, to walk in a, on this road of recovery, to stay sober. To, and we video chatted, okay? So I know, I looked at my son, I saw, that is something that was different about him, okay? I kept him on the phone, we talked for 15 minutes. And then what I said is I should have kept him on the phone another five minutes and maybe those police officers wouldn't have been there.
2: He ended that call the way you say goodbye to your mom.
1: Hey, Madre. Well, remember, I love you. Those were the last words that I heard my son say to me. I love you, mom. I love you, mom.
2: After that, Manny ate a hamburger, helped fix the Wi-Fi, and asked Cedric for a piece of paper. He drew three crosses at the top and made a to-do list.
5: And he had three lines and it said, uh, Call courts, call courts, call Call my son, son and and stay sober.
2: We found a picture of that list. The last line says, remain, followed by the letters S, O, and B. It was like something interrupted him. Manny never finished that list.
0: Very few you know, of these police reports that involved him came from someone calling 911. It was generally police saw him somewhere and wanted to go see what was up with this guy. So that there's a word for that, a term, they call him Terry Stops, Officer Initiated Stops. The stop that ended Manny's life was a Terry stop.
2: Around 11 o'clock, Manny walked to 7-Eleven for a snack, like he did almost every night. Some medication he was taking made it hard to sleep. The walks helped. Plus, the store wasn't that far, just over a mile away from home. He wasn't gone long, Manny was heading back, snacking on some powdered donuts when Tacoma police officers stopped him at 96th and Ainsworth. He was just a short walk from home.
1: If that ever happens, then you have to look at your boy, in that casket. It's the worst feeling. The worst that I have ever felt when I looked at my son. Lifeless. You guys, you just don't know what it feels like, the emptiness, the brokenness. Kneeling
2: over Manny's grave, washing the tombstone clean, Marcia talked about rewriting the story that police told about her son. It's March 3rd, exactly two years after they killed him.
1: It took me all day to get out here. You know that? But I knew I was coming. Nothing could stop me from this day. Because this is honor to my son. And he deserves it. He deserves for his name to be exonerated because his name was stated that he was a nobody. No one cared about him. But guess what? My son was loved by many. Kari, my son was taught don't fuck with the police. And that's why I'm gonna leave this with you. At the very end, my son was saying, sir, I can't breathe. I can't breathe, sir.
2: That righteous anger from Marcia, it didn't come out until the very end of our time together. Most of what she talked about that day was finding peace again. As a mom, it's hard to imagine how she ever found it.
1: The Bible says train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he's old, he don't depart. Look what happened. My son knew where he needed to go, to the church. The church. My baby, Manuel Elijah Ellis, was chosen and his legacy will live on. He lit up the world. When I used to talk about this, Kari, I used to get mad as everything. I would go crazy talking about it. But God has since calmed my spirit. And he's let me know that he's in control. And for me, not to fret thyself of evildoers. Or don't worry, Marcia. Okay. it's gonna all work out, and it will.
2: On the next episode of The Walk Home.
1: Messiah Ford was a student of mine.
0: I see these four officers as stand-ins for a whole generation of American men.
2: Four police officers had their own journey to 96th and Ainsworth. Gang members moving from L.A. to the Pacific Northwest.
4: It's like either you support us unequivocally or you're on the other side of that thin blue line. And
2: so did the city they worked for. The Walk Home is a production of KNKX Public Radio and The Seattle Times. It's written and produced by me, Kari Ploeg, Mayowa Aina, and Will James. Additional reporting by Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Our editor is Tiara Darnell. Our executive producers are Florangela Davila and Jonathan Martin. Bethany Denton is our mix engineer. Music comes from Tacoma artists Will Jordan, Marcel E.C. Augustin, and Quincy Q. Henry. Our cover art is by Rotator Creative. Additional audio comes from the Seattle Times videography team. Research by Miyoko Wolf. Our website is by Parker Miles-Blome. Kara Coleman is our online managing editor. A special thank you to evangelist Janice Powell for her rendition of the song, I'm Free. And special thanks to the Ellis family for sharing their story